0: Uh, The title for my message tonight is going to be The Marks of a True Fellowship. Um, This is something that I'm very passionate about, that I've grown passionate about over probably the last four years of being here, three and a half years, or going on five, whatever it is. Uh, But I've been here for a while, and this taking church seriously is something that has grown on me um, over the past four years of being here. I do like to joke with Pastor Randall, saying that the only way you're going to get rid of me is if you send me out or kick me out, uh, because I'm never leaving. But it's really not a joke, um, as many of you may know the story. But you know, I was look, I was desperate for a biblical church, and I was praying and praying and begging God. And I do believe, with all of my heart, that this is where God has sent me to serve. And it has been um, a great last four years, and I look forward to many more um, as serving in this church, whatever God would have me do. Um, but last week, we removed three people from church membership. Now, you may not remember, but I couldn't contain myself. Um, when I saw Pastor Randall get down here to pray, I knew what he was praying about, and it just it crushed me, because we don't understand, really, the heart of the pastor um, I think it's a pastor's woe to love his people in a way that we just can't, we just don't understand. And so when somebody joins covenant with us and joins a membership with us, it's serious business. And to, to see somebody leave and to not take membership seriously is heartbreaking. And so I just couldn't contain myself. I, I lost all ability to control myself and I just had to weep. Um, uh, but I'm thankful to have a church that loves me, loves each other, and it was okay. I knew I was okay. Um, But tonight I want to remind you, not that I'm giving a biblical defense for church membership, but I just want to remind you um, the membership that you took, or some of you have taken, some of you plan to take, um, with this church. Maybe some of you have membership in another church. Um, But I want to remind you of the covenant that this church has. So if you're a member here, this is the covenant that you have made. It says I covenant to love the church family by growing spiritually, being faithful in attendance and participation, supporting the ministries of the church through giving and service, seeking to preserve the unity of the church, maintaining a good testimony towards unbelievers. Now we have to understand without that we don't get the next part. We have to have individuals come together in unity for this next part. This is what the church covenants to us. Teaching you the Word of God, providing opportunities for growth, nurture, and service, uh, providing a framework for building fellowship and godly relationships, carrying out our responsibilities to reprove, uh, exhort, care for, and discipline, broadening the believer's concern and perspective towards those unreached by the gospel, evangelism. Now, it is my consensus that all of these are being supplied to us through this church because of the first part. We have a church body made up of individuals that commit to the second part, what the church does for each one of us. But you have to understand it doesn't work without all of us together. You don't get a church body without having individuals in covenant with one another. So I want to encourage you tonight as we look at this text to be serious about your covenant with this church, with the Bride of Christ, because of the Gospel. This brings me to my text, which is Hebrews 10, 23-25. If you'll open your Bibles with me. <clears throat> it reads as such, "...let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, we know this is a very popular passage, and studying it, I learned it means a little bit something different than we're used to using it for. Now, it can still be used in the same way, but the primary application is slightly different than what we're familiar with. Um, we like to hold we like to really think about the not neglecting to meet together without really considering what comes before or after the consequences or, or the, the benefits of um, but bearing this in mind in your church membership and what you've covenanted here at this church or your church or what you plan to covenant here there are three marks of a true fellowship of a body of believers I would say the, the first Mark, is the superlative in fellowship, which is Christ. Our theme this year is Christ as superlative, the superlative nature of Christ. So Christ must be preeminent in all of our fellowship. He must be at the head of everything that we do here. The second would be the sanctification that takes place in fellowship, which is the ministry of the church Toward each other, what we just talked about, this covenant of exhortation, of rebuke, of church discipline, of offering opportunity, um, nurturing growth, those types of things. And then thirdly, the strength in fellowship, the unity. Uh, this is the, the, the gospel uh, power that unites us all together in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as I preach this word tonight, God, I do pray that the church would be encouraged. I pray that each person here who is in covenant with this church or another, God, that they would take that covenant seriously. That they would see that if they're here, it is a work of God. If they serve here, it is a work of God. If they have grown, it is a work of God. That all of this is to the glory of Christ. We are just mere men and women hoping for a for a better future in Christ, loving one another, learning how to live, learning how to care for each other, to forgive each other. But God is the Spirit of God that leads us in all truth, that directs us into righteousness, that points us to Christ, and may Jesus Christ receive all the glory in His name. Amen. So the superlative in fellowship in verse 23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now in this passage, if you go back a little bit in verse 22, there are three let us statements. This gives the emphasis that we all need to be doing something together. This is emphasized in the passage. So in verse 22, you say, let us draw near. This is drawing near to God, no longer through a temple veil. But let us draw near through the blood of Christ, uniting both Jew and Gentile, both Jew and Greek together. Uh, The second let us draw near is in verse 23. Let us hold fast, or, or I mean the let us state, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is the confession of faith in Christ Accompanied by a submission to baptism, according to verse 22, you have the heart sprinkled clean, not by water, but by blood, and our bodies washed in baptism as a public testimony to the new life in Christ. So this is not that you're confessing gospel truths, but this is that you're confessing to believe these gospel truths. That when you stand up here before you take baptism, we do a profession of faith. That's what is happening here. That's what he's talking about, that let us do this. Let us hold fast to what we've confessed about what we believe in Christ. And then in verse 24, let us consider one another. If you look at uh, Philippians 2, 3-7 really quick with me. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So it is the gospel, it is the power of the gospel that, calls us to consider one another, to consider others more highly than ourselves. All of this, uh, this letting us um, draw near to God, let us hold fast to our confession, let us consider one another, this is all from Christ. It is all in Christ. It is all for Christ. It's not directly for our personal benefit, our personal gain, but it is to elevate Christ in us. It is to give God the glory first, and then we are mere recipients of that grace. He is the superlative in our fellowship. He is above all things. From Christ proceeds every thought of love, care, affection, good works, considerations, and all good things pertaining to the life and the health of the church belong to Christ. This is why there's no room for jealousy. If God gifts a man or a woman a, a gift to, for, for his glory, the rest of the church ought to give glory to God in that. Not jealousy, not strife. He says, <clears throat> so he says in this verse, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So, not in the old way, but in the new way. This confession is the, the new confession. Um, when you look at all of Hebrews in chapters 1 through 10, it points to Christ being better in every way. He is greater than the angels and the prophets in chapter 1 through 4. He is greater than Moses in chapters 3 5 and 6, through 5 and er, verses 5 and 6. He is greater than all priests, chapters 7, 20 through 25. He is greater than the entire sacrificial system, chapter 10, 11 through 14. And this is what we confess. That we're no longer looking to the old way, but we're looking to Christ who has completed all of it, who has accomplished all at the cross and has done away with all of those things. There's no more temple. There's no more veil. There's no more slaughtering of bulls and goats that don't take away sin. There's no more pilgrimage. There's no more earthly priesthood. There's no more temple. But Christ is our great high priest. He is our hope. He's our blessed hope. And this is for the Jew and the Gentile. This is what this is all about, bringing in unity. Christ is our hope. Look at Titus 2:11 through 15. If you don't know where that's at, it's in the T's. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Titus 2:11 through 15 <clears throat> it says, "For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people." so much for antinomianism. he purifies us for himself he possesses us as a people zealous for good works eager to do good works <clears throat> this is what christ does in us and it says it says in the verse in verse 22 do it without wavering it says do this let us hold fast a confession of our hope who is christ without wavering. This is unbending. It's firm. It's not inclining. But if you think about it, really it would be not declining. Because if you waver on the gospel, on the truth, you're only going to something less. You're declining to something lower than Christ. There's nothing better. So you would be declining, but you would be inclining your ears to hear it. But we do this without entertaining the impossibility of the contrary that Christ didn't raise from the dead, that what Paul is teaching is not true, that it's not the Spirit of God, um, that the gospel that we confess could possibly not be true, that we don't waver on the gospel. We don't waver on the truths of Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel, verses 1 and 2, "...now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved... If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, here he says, hold fast. It's holding fast to the gospel, to this confession. They go hand in hand. But you have to be convinced of it in your own heart. Right? It's not just a vain profession. That's what Paul is talking about. Is People are just making a vain profession, but they're not convinced of it in their own heart. They don't, honestly don't know if Christ truly raised from the dead. They honestly don't know if God exists. But the Bible tells us you must believe that he exists. And he's a rewarder for those who who seek him. Uh, In Acts 9.22, we can have confidence. We can have assurance. Paul, a Hebrew, uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man who knew the law. Acts 22 says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See, all of the Old Testament, in light of where we're at in Hebrews, points to Christ. And Paul is proving it to the Jews, and they're confounded. They don't have any answer to Paul, what he's saying. If you look at Acts, uh, flip forward just a little bit more, chapter 17, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So, I can't convince you. Pastor Randall can't convince you. But it's only the Spirit of God through the Scriptures that is ever going to convince you that Christ has risen from the dead. It's the testimony of the Spirit of God. And you must be convinced of this. And when you are, you'll never let it go. You'll never let it go. It will rule and reign, and it will bother you until sanctification starts to take place. You will not be able to escape it. In verse 23 it says, Let us hold fast confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. What was the promise? It's 1 John 2.25. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. Sounds like a good promise to me. In 2 Peter 3.9, a very popular and misunderstood passage. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God is patient with us. He's not going to let any of us fall to the left or to the right. We may for a period, but God is faithful. If He's bore witness to you by His Spirit, He's going to keep you to the end. If, uh, look at uh, John 6, 35 and 40. It's great comfort in these passages. A great hope for us as, as a church to be united together. So you have the promise. You have God is faithful. Now we have Christ is faithful. You have Christ is always doing the will of His Father. In John 6, 35-40, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, as if he had one, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ does not have a will different than his Father. And he says... For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He only does what he sees his Father doing. He's perfectly faithful. Yes. It's a great encouragement to know that we have a God, a Christ, who is never going to fail us, who is always there, who is always waiting, who is always pleading our case at the Father's side. Who is always interceding for us when there's a when there's a division or there's a controversy or there's a, a tension in the church? Christ is the answer. We must run to Christ, and this is Christ as the head of all true worship. He is the superlative in fellowship among us believers. He has given us work to do together, uh, not separately, but together, as to build the church and to keep her pure through ongoing sanctification. So the question is, is Christ superlative in your life? Are you bringing the the benefit of Christ in your personal life to the fellowship in this church? Is Christ preeminent over your day? Do you think about Him? Do you pray to Him? Do you read His Word? Do you confide in Him? Christ must rule and reign over your heart. And through that, when we come together, we can sanctify one another. We can sanctify each other in fellowship. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Uh, The NLT says, let us think of ways to motivate. NASB says, let us consider how to encourage HCSB says, let us be concerned. NRSV says, let us consider how to provoke. It's the idea that we simply care enough about each other for the greater good of each other. How can I help my brother or my sister be better? How can I, how can I better their life? How can I show them love? How can I show them Christ in my own life? This is to, is to stir up how can I stir them up? How can I stimulate? Uh, how can I provoke them to love and good works? The word here is a, a provocation, which means to jab someone so they respond. They got this word, the commentary say they got this word from, uh, from physicians. So it would be like a strong reaction when you poke somebody with a scalpel or a needle. They're going to react. And you might think, You know, if this is what the gospel does, if this is how the gospel is supposed to affect us and the sanctification that's supposed to take place, well, I've shared the gospel and a lot of people don't react. Does that mean that it doesn't work? Well, stick a dead man with a knife. He's not going to react. He can't. He doesn't have a nature to react. His nature is dead. So spiritually, if you stick somebody who's spiritually dead with the gospel The only reaction is to not believe it. The only reaction is that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But we have a great hope in that Christ washes people in regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit so that when you preach the gospel and it pricks the heart, a man comes to faith through repentance and profession of faith. And then all of this takes place in his life. It will set him on the course to Christ until he dies. Elkhart adds, uh, though not expressly mentioned here, the converse thought is implied that we may ourselves thus be provoked. So in provoking others, it's going to provoke yourself to good works, to love, because you don't want to be the hypocrite. Your conscience would bother you if you're telling others, well, you, should, you ought to do this. Hey, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. But then you yourself is not, are not partaking of it, are not applying it to your own life, you would be provoked in thought against yourself. So this the the converse here is implied that when we provoke others, it benefits us in provoking ourselves. And he says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. It's because this love is what brings forth the fruit for God. It's the evidence of God working in us uh, that we love because He first loved us. He had to set His love on us. Uh, we re- we're reading through the Psalms right now in youth, and in the first 12 or 13 passages, there's two verses about God hating evildoers and God hating the wicked. We don't like to talk about that. Our culture doesn't like to think that God hates. But it's, if God has love, He must hate that which is opposite of love by necessity, it's his character it's his nature to perfectly love and to perfectly hate. We have to hate what God hates and we have to love what God loves. Turn with me to Romans 6 chapter chapter 6 verse 22. Talking about fruit here, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. So this, this being provoked to love and good works is producing fruit, which leads to sanctification. Romans seven four, just a few verses later, it says, Paul says, likewise, my brothers. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We are now fruit bearers for God. And this is done through the greatest commandment and the one like it, love for God and love for neighbor. But what is love? We know the famous passage, we know it in 1 Corinthians 13. 4 through 8a. Very familiar with this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. These are the qualities of God that He gives us. He puts them in us so that we can express the love of God to one another. Notice it doesn't say love is reserved. It doesn't say love speculates. It doesn't say love, uh, love uh, uh, insinuates. It doesn't say that uh, love will wait around and kind of see. We have to understand that we don't know a person's heart. We can't perceive their heart. But what we can do is see their fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a tree by the fruit that it produces. It's pretty obvious. You'll know somebody by the words that they speak. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Um, But all of this love, this stirring up one another in love again, is the power of the gospel to the glory of Christ now, there are warnings in the Scripture about lacking love. 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty two. I think this one gets overlooked quite a bit in light of Galatians chapter 1. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, we know it says, anyone preaching a false gospel, let him be accursed. Right? Look at the end of Galatians or 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's pretty serious. That's not, if anyone's not on the fence... If if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That means we ought to love Jesus Christ. That your heart ought to be filled with thankfulness for what Christ has done for you. That your sins have been forgiven. That everything that you're going to do was laid upon Christ at the cross of Calvary so that you can be made right with God. So that when all of this is brought to the final day, The last day, as we'll see here in a minute, that we can stand before God with the righteousness of Christ. That there's no more guilt. There's no more shame. There's no more anxiously waiting for judgment. There's no more condemnation. We're not to come to church worried about what this person thinks or what that person thinks or if I'm going to mess up or if I'm going to do right or wrong. That's That's all fear that has to do with judgment. And perfect love casts out fear. We have to come to church with excitement to see each other to shake hands to hug and to 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 pray for one another to love one another 1 John 4:20 20 and 21 <clears throat> If anyone says I love God and hates his brother he's a liar For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, if you make a covenant with your brother or sister, you ought to keep it. If the church is doing what the church is called to do, what they've covenanted to do, then out of love you ought to keep it. You ought to keep the covenant that you made with them. We have this good works, stirring each other up to love, love God, love Christ, love the church, love the gospel, and good works. First, we have to understand that we're saved for good works. We're not just saved to go to heaven. We're not just saved to wait around on a blessed hope and ride this thing out, but we're saved for good works. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God already has a plan for your life, right? People say um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, he does in Christ, and they're called good works. They ain't preaching that in the four laws gospel, I promise you that. These good works are a result of saving faith, right? This is what faith works. This is what faith does to you, James 2.18. I will show you my faith by my works. He's, it's, not a, it's not like a, a boast, or, a jealous, or like, a, like a prove the guy wrong type thing, but your works speak for themselves. You don't have to go around talking about you do this for the church and you do that and I get to preach here. And you, We don't have to do any of that. You don't have to get on social media and say, oh, I did this for the, for the fellowship meal or I did that. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong, but your good works will show themselves. Your love for one another will come out naturally because it's the Spirit of God doing it. Good works bring glory to God. Matthew five, fourteen through 16. <clears throat> you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others, that God may see your, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, that God would receive the glory. Man, look at the work God's doing in that guy's life. Look at the work that God's doing in that young lady's life. Look, praise God that he saved her, that he saved him, that he's doing a work. That is fellowship. That is love for one another, to give God the glory for that. Good works keep us from being unfruitful in effect and ineffective, look at Second Peter, chapter one. Verses three through eight. Second Peter 1, three through eight. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ is continuing to work and sow into your life for the great good of the church. Not so that we can gain personally. Yes, we grow, but it's in light of Christ and His bride. It's to sanctify the church. It's to put off worldliness. It's to put off the things that are profane and unholy and un, unrighteous and to give God the glory for the work that He's doing in our lives and, and helping us to be, not be unfruitful. Helping us to not be idle. These good works are ultimately uh, the expression of love through action. Right? Good works are the result. I mean, I started making a list of things that we could call good works. It's just endless. But the reality is that you're putting love in action. Whatever it is, whatever you do, if you do it in love, it's good. God, it's a good work. Uh, 1 John 3, 16 16 through 18, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. Put your love into action. Love the saints. Love the church. Love your enemy. Love God. You can pray to God. You You can pray for others. You can worship God. You can intercede on the behalf of others. There's so many ways we can physically... And in action, express our love toward one another and toward God. We take up offerings. We help those in need. We serve, we serve community. We serve uh, here at the church. We serve other churches abroad. These are all acts of love. God considers all of this a good work because it's the Spirit of God. If there was no Spirit here, we wouldn't be doing these things. It's plain and simple. We would not be doing these things and so when Christ is a superlative in our fellowship, and we're stirred up to our sanctification in this fellowship, uh, then this is, this is what strengthens the fellowship, right? You come, to, you come to church, and you're encouraged, you're built up. Maybe you're rebuked. Maybe you need to be corrected and disciplined. But it, if the Spirit is in you, then you receive it, and you desire. It creates bonds of strength. In the church, it, this is why I love this church so much. is because how many people have come in from the outside and they don't get in? Not because we don't want them here, but because they come in here with ulterior motives. They come in here with, with lies or with deception or with trying to change what we're doing or trying to, trying to get us to believe something we reject that against our confession or whatever. Thank God that we have a pastor, and Pastor John, and deacons, and people here, church members who are faithful enough to say no. We're going to protect this place against that. We're not going to let anybody come in here and disrupt what we have. This is, we are united in Christ. I love being here. This strengthens our fellowship. Look at verse 25. This is where it gets a little... We're going to, we're going to learn something. I definitely learned something here. So verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, encouraging one another, and all the more as the day drawing near, as you see the day drawing near. So this not neglecting to meet together. Um, this is to abandon or forsake. If you look at Second Timothy 4:10. I'm going to go back to 9, but 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Do your best to come to me soon. Um, For for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. He deserted him. This is the idea here. Not just neglect, not just not coming to church every once in a while, but deserting, to just cut off to just not attend. But it's not really about the volume of attendance. That's not what we're really dealing with here. They miss a day here and there. They miss once a month, whatever. It's really not what we're dealing with here. But this idea of abandoning and deserting, forsaking to meet together. um, This meeting together is an idea of the collection of all the saints. Everybody coming together. Um, Gill writes... And he says this word meet together is, is one word in the Greek, and it means not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together or the epi of one another, so of my church and their church. But the, the word here is to distinguish between the Christian church and the Jews. So what was going on is that the Jews were not participating in fellowship with the Christians. They're forsaking unity with them and neglecting the gospel. But the implication is there for people who don't go to church. If this is talking about the Jews and, and the Gentiles or the Jews and the Greeks not fellowshipping together and saying we've got our own Christian thing going on over here and we've got our own temple worship and stuff going on here and we're not keeping the gospel, the main point, like the author of Hebrews is trying to do. If you've got somebody who's forsaking just even trying to participate in fellowship, it's much more severe the danger is much more real than we even anticipated. Because it's talking about people who are gathering together. So when we talk about those who neglect in the sense that they don't ever come, the, the, the implications are far more severe. It's, it's like the lights are completely out for that. They have no understanding at all of the power of God. It's not that they're wrestling it out. It's that they just don't care. There's no spirit of God there. It just can't be. Even here, he's trying to correct just bad theology, bad doctrine, bad understanding of the unity of Christ. And he's just trying to say, just get together in Christ. Let go of the temple. Let go of the bulls and the goats. and Let go of the veil and all of these things. Christ has finished it. Now the Jew and the Gentile, through the power of the gospel, are united. the gospel, it unites us. It unites the outsider through repentance and faith to come inside. It doesn't divide us. It doesn't split us up. It doesn't isolate churches in pockets of America that have, that have nothing to do with anyone else. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, we've got a tiny little church here in Briar, Texas. But you know, we're going to do all we can. We're going to do something in El Salvador, we're going to do something in Central America. We're going to do something in Honduras. We're going to do something in Mexico. We're going to do something in the Czech Republic. We're going to we're going to try to spread the gospel and help support the gospel as far as we and as wide as we can. That's the gospel. That's strength. That's us and them thousands of miles away in fellowship together. On the Lord's day by the spirit of God, that's unity. It's beautiful. He says this is their habit, to neglect, to meet together. The warning here, the danger here, talking about churches isolating themselves, is this is the first step towards apostasy. For the the churchman, the individual, to start isolating yourself is the first step toward apostasy. I want you to look at Galatians 2. There's a biblical illustration here. Verse 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Very strong language. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, like what he ought to have been doing. Out of fear for the circumcision party, out of fear for the Jews, that's exactly what's happening in Hebrews. That's what they're doing to, the Jews are doing to the Gentiles. And the author' saying, "No, no, no, come together. Don't do this. Don't neglect to meet, because it's condemning because of the gospel implications. And if we continue down this path of separation, if a church continues down that path of divi- divisiveness division, separation, and isolation, it just leads to full blown hypocrisy or full-blown apostasy. Uh, Look at in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fear, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much, more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the son of, underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Just leads to full-blown apostasy. So the idea here now to encourage one another as it says in the passage, is to meet. The encouraging is, we already, we're doing all the encouraging in the first part, stirring each other up to love and good works, but this encouraging here is that if you see somebody not coming to church, you need to encourage them to be meeting with us or somewhere, joining a church, tying themselves to that body in faith and submitting themselves to elders and deacons and, or uh, elders and overseers in order that they can serve the church and serve God lest they fall into full-blown apostasy. Uh, This idea of encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near, it's not to condemn or to apostatize somebody, but it's to encourage them to assemble together, um, which is the the greater good in view here for keeping them um, in step with the power of the gospel, that it does unite us, it does break down these barriers and these walls um, that were in place, and it brings us together together. Uh, Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And all the more as you see the day draw near. So the possible meaning for, excuse me, the day Uh, the commentaries are all over the place kind of arguing about this, but it could mean death. It could mean, as, as all the more you see the day draw near, your death. It could mean uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. because there was so much unrest in Israel. Um, times were, were very uh, unstable. Um, a lot of, a lot of <clears throat> unrest. Or it could mean, which I believe, the return of Christ at the end of all time. As doing this all the more as you see the day draw near building the church, purifying the church, sanctifying one another, encouraging one another, building each other up, all of this in light of the fact that Christ is going to return. <clears throat> um, I believe this is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10-15. And we're almost finished here. <clears throat> I knew I'd be a little long. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. Uh, According to the grace of God has given me, like a skilled master, I build, uh, builder, builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. So I think it's the big picture here. Have the end in sight. Have the end in mind as you're doing all this thing because we're headed to the glory of Christ. We're headed to perfect fellowship, perfect sanctification, perfect superlative worship of Christ. Keep that in mind. Keep Christ in mind most of all. So I have questions. What are you building with? Is there any evidence in your life of good works? Is there any evidence in your speech, in your heart, in your conscience of good works? Do you love the church? I would say most of us here have expressions of love on a regular basis. Do you love Christ? Do you care for your own soul? Are you indifferent? Do you find yourself struggling in times of indifference? Do you reach out? Do you ask for help? Do you ask for prayer? That's what we're here for. To serve one another. Don't isolate yourself. Love the church. So in conclusion, Christ must be the superlative in your life for the fellowship of the church. We must grow in sanctification, encouraging each other to grow, and we must... Strengthen the fellowship of the church through these things. But there is a warning that either you're strengthening the church or you're weakening it. That you're diminishing it. Are you adding to the wellness of the church here? Or are you drawing out of it and diminishing it? It can only be one or the other. You must put the Gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ first in your life. So many people will say, "Uh, the church has never done anything for me but they themselves have never done anything for the church. Oftentimes that's the case. So as I reminded you earlier of the covenant that you made with this church or another church, um, I reminded you because because you're committing these gospel truths to your life and the life of the church. I'm reminding you so that you'll take it seriously. I I don't want to see my pastor on his knees weeping, but I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen, and I, and I would hate to see that happen to anybody here tonight. But you have to take your faith seriously. You have to give your life to the church, to Christ. You love with your whole heart. And I want to challenge you, actually, before we leave, um, to you don't have to do it now, but later in the quietness of your home or whatever. Go to Second Chronicles chapter uh, twenty-nine through thirty-one. It's about King Hezekiah. And in these small chapters, you will see the characteristics of somebody who's committed to God, to His people. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we have a, a love for Christ. God, I pray that we have a love for the commitments that we make toward one another. God, I pray that we, when we don't feel like doing it, that we would be reminded that Christ died for us and He did it. He willingly went. God, I pray that we wouldn't do anything uh, begrudgingly or with, with groaning, but as the love of Christ rules and reigns in our hearts that we would serve one another, that we would cherish the church that You've built here. God, You've taken people who were a mess, and You have brought us together in unity because of Christ. And God, I pray that we would take this covenant. That we've made to one another seriously. That when somebody comes to join fellowship, we would encourage them to continue in it. That we would encourage them to take it seriously. To be thoughtful of what they're committing to, to what they're saying, to what they're professing. That we would encourage them to look to Christ and to keep Christ at the center of all things. Not to get jealous, not to get angry but that we would love one another as God has loved us. God, that you would receive all the glory for the work that you've done here, for the work that you will do, for the work that's ongoing and continuing here. And I pray that each one of us would be encouraged to just continue, continue to love Christ, to love the church, to love the gospel, to be forgiving, to be gracious and merciful, to be long-suffering and kind. God, I pray that Your Spirit would just continue to work and to fill us with all of these things until that final day. Father in Heaven, I thank You for this church. I thank You for my pastors. I thank You for my deacons, for all those who serve, for all those who were here before I got here, who received me, who have helped me to get where I'm at today. God, I thank You for their encouragement, and I pray that we just continue on. In Christ's name, Amen.